Welcome. You are listening to Aftersight. This recording is intended solely for individuals who are blind or have low vision. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News for the week of February 22nd, 2024. My name is Gregory Haddock. For today's reading, we will be covering the following stories. Golden to remove sand, modify Whitewater Park's beach before summer. Some Clear Creek access points to be closed during peak times by Corinne Westman for the Golden Transcript. Arvada celebrates Fat Tuesday with 5th annual Mardi Gras celebration. Thousands flock to Old Town for brass band-led romp through streets by Riley Dunn for the Arvada Press. Morrison and Red Rocks, a love-hate relationship. Increase in concerts comes with impacts for small towns residents by Jane Reuter for the Canyon Courier. Denver police ask families who use the Apollo Funeral Home for help by Joe Davis. And following up with various articles. Golden to remove sand, modify Whitewater Park's beach before summer. Some Clear Creek access points to be closed during peak times by Corinne Westman. By mid-June, the Sandy Beach area at Clear Creek Whitewater Park won't be a beach anymore. The City of Golden is planning to remove all the sand and reconfigure the area with colored steps, climbing boulders, and an ADA-accessible concrete pad. The shoreline will be re-established and the existing vegetation preserved, City staff members described at a February 13th City Council work session. Additionally, the city is going to close off several access points along Clear Creek ahead of the summer tubing season. City staff clarified February 14th that the exact number and locations are still being finalized. Materials on the Guiding Golden website say 25, but an interactive map included in the February 13th City Council work session packet lists 14. Of the 14 spots labeled on the interactive map, five are slated to be fenced off completely for revegetation purposes. Other spots will be gated to limited access during peak times only, city staff stated February 13th. City Manager Scott Vargo said the city must start work on both these projects soon to complete them by early or mid-June. He said there could be impacts to the surrounding sidewalks while there is work ongoing, but if that's the case, the city will set up signs and detours. Sand. It gets everywhere. Some Goldenites oppose these projects, pushing for the city to keep the beach and not close off any access points. Carl Dowdy said he'd read more than 100 comments across Guiding Golden and social media, and most people were opposed to, quote, for the same reasons that I am. He believed closing creek access points wouldn't decrease the crowds, but simply move them. He also recommended Golden stop advertising Clear Creek as a tubing destination. In written comments to council, Frank Hanno stated it's inconceivable that Golden's considering removing the beach area. He believed most were local families with young children rather than the party atmosphere Golden staff members have described. Carly Lorenz, 
Assistant City Manager said the beach area is far and away the biggest problem spot along the Clear Creek Corridor. It's a hotbed of behaviors code enforcement officers struggle to police, such as drinking, littering, and general party behavior. Another problem is the sand itself, Lorenz and Vargo said. Golden pays to install the sand, and when it inevitably gets into Clear Creek, Golden pays again to have it removed from the water. It also gets all over the adjacent sidewalk, causing other hazards, they described. In removing the sand and reconfiguring the area, Golden hopes to solve multiple problems and creates a welcoming environment where people can sit and enjoy the creek. Quote, but that doesn't necessarily have to be a sand volleyball type area, she continued. Controlling the crowds. As for closing off some creek access points and other steps the city's taking for future tubing seasons, Lorenz stressed how the number one comment Golden receives from residents is essentially, quote, control the amount of people along Clear Creek. The city's potentially working toward a reservation system for summer 2025, but Mayor Laura Weinberg stressed that the city council hasn't decided on that topic yet. Still, as Golden works toward that possibility, Lorenz said staff members are looking for ways to better control crowds during peak times. With so many current access points, Lorenz said requiring any kind of data collection wristband or sticker is difficult. With fewer access points, that would be easier. Plus, it'd help the city move closer to establishing a check-in spot or process to educate tubers on safety, she said. Quote, certainly, I, I think the target population is during peak times. Lawrence continued, adding that the gated access points wouldn't be closed during non-peak days or seasons. On a larger scale, Lawrence explained how Golden's at the forefront of General Creek management in many ways. Other cities like Boulder and Steamboat Springs either haven't or are just now addressing similar issues with their creeks. We really are probably managing our creek more than others. Cities and managing theirs, Lorenz said, adding that Golden started doing so because of continuous feedback from the community. Golden staff members are trying to come up with the best ideas we can to get to where we want to be. There's not a simple fix for the creek. In responding to the February 13th public comments, Councillor Don Cameron stressed how Golden has a responsibility to steward and protect the creek. There aren't issues during non-peak times when a few dozen people are spending time along the banks. But during peak times when there are thousands of people in and along the water, Golden must do something, he said. Quote, by limiting access, we believe we'll be able to better enforce some of the behaviors that drive kids and families away. Cameron said, we're doing the best we can with the information we have. Arvada celebrates Fat Tuesday with 5th Annual Mardi Gras Celebration. Thousands flock to Old Town for brass band-led romp through streets. By Riley Dunn. Old Town Arvada showed its festive side for Fat Tuesday as thousands of folks came down to boogie with brass band Gorilla Fanfare for the 5th Annual Mardi Gras Celebration. Under clear skies, with just a hint of cold in the air, people gathered in front of Carly's Boutique on February 13th and were greeted by jubilant music and beads galore.
Local business owner Scott Spears began the festivities with a welcoming speech before Old Town fixtures Andrew and Tamara Hansen guided them on a march through Old Town. This year was the 13-year-old Hansen twins, second time leading the Mardi Gras festivities, a task Tamara said she enjoyed doing with her brother. It feels fun and exciting to lead the march, Tamara said. It was fun to do it with Andrew, especially because he's someone I know really well. There was a lot going on and a lot more songs this year. Tamara said her favorite tunes were Gorilla Fanfare were Shake It Off by Taylor Swift and The Next Episode by Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg. The Hanson's mom, Debbie, who owns La Dolce Vita Shop, coffee shop, was nearby to ensure that the youngsters didn't lead the pack astray. I thought it was a great turnout, and the band was amazing, Debbie said. Old Town Arvada Director of Marketing and Events, Stephanie Paul, said the event was a success and thanked community members for coming out and showing their Mardi Gras spirit. Quote, Our fifth annual Mardi Gras would not be possible without our Arvada community members making every moment of the event unforgettable, Paul said. We are immensely grateful for the unwavering support of the Arvada community, whose enthusiasm fuels the continuous success of our Old Town Arvada events. We look forward to dancing alongside our neighbors next year at our sixth annual Mardi Gras celebration, Paul continued. Morrison and Red Rocks, a love-hate relationship. Increase in concerts comes with impacts for small towns residents by Jane Reuter. When David Glade built his Morrison home eight years ago, he added extra insulation to help absorb the sound coming from a very famous neighbor. Glade's house has an unobstructed view of Red Rocks Amphitheater. The measures he took during his home construction included adding a foot-thick insulation and hurricane-proof French doors that were advertised as soundproof. On concert nights, he also wears earplugs in bed. None of it has been enough. I still get all the bass, he said. I'm a light sleeper, so I just sit up and wait for it to be done. But last year, when, t when they kind of went into mid-November, it was kind of wearing on me. The Morrison Town Board talked about the venue's double-edged impacts on the town during its last meeting. Glade, a software engineer who worked with Red Rocks consultants on previous noise impact study, presented the board with a report on the venue February 6th. It touched on the increase in concerts, concerns about lighting, and decibel levels. While Red Rocks concerts feed the small town's economy, concert goers also jam Morrison's streets. Venue lights illuminate night skies, and the band fill the nights with sound that often echoes through the valley into the wee hours. Further exacerbating the issues, concerts used to happen primarily in the summer. Today, Red Rocks season extends nearly eight months from the end of March to mid-November, and those months are busy. About 200 concerts are planned in 2024. The world-renowned amphitheater draws people for more than just concerts. It also hosts yoga on the rocks, film on the rocks, and high school graduations, and draws a steady stream of tourists and day users. We love Red Rocks, said Morrison Mayor Chris Wolf. A lot of the local businesses rely on it, and we are benefiting from the additional shows, but sometimes there's fallout. It has a big impact. Representatives of both the city and of Denver-owned Red Rocks and the town of Morrison both say they enjoyed a historically good working relationship. 
Red Rocks venue director Tad Bowman expects that will continue. We will collaboratively. We work collaboratively with the town on a regular basis and will continue to work where we can to make those things work, he said. It's a balancing act, managing a venue that's world-renowned and trying to be good neighbors. Glade agreed. Ted is easy to work with, and he's trying to balance between the promoters and artists. He told the town board, I just wanted to keep this on the radar. It seems like in the last few years we've started amping up volume and also the number of concerts. Constantly improving technology means sound systems are getting better, he said. The acoustics, the speakers, the sound systems, everything is getting better and more efficient, he said. They're able to pump out sounds they never able to produce before and do it at an incredible volume. The two entities have worked together to address issues in the past. In 2013, Morrison residents voiced similar concerns. Red Rocks hired acoustical consulting firm K2 for a nearly four-year noise study and added new rules that included a decibel limit and fines for exceeding it. 2022, Red Rocks and Morrison negotiated an impact fee, which is primarily used for the town's law enforcement. The fee, adjusted based on the consumer price index, generated $180,000 in 2023. It's expected to bring in $220,000 in 2024. Some Morrison trustees said it's not enough. Morrison has 125 households. We don't have the tax base to support the level of law enforcement we need, said town trustee Katie Gill. We have 200 plus shows a year there now, as opposed to 30 when I moved here. They've quadrupled the number of shows, said trustee John Leonard. The impact is dramatic to us. We're due something. Trustee David Wirtz said lights from the amphitheater, which remain on well after the concerts as crews clean up, also have a negative impact. It's like a Christmas tree up there. He said, most of the town is below the amphitheater. It's like a set of headlights pointing into our houses. Glade's reports to the town board concluded with some recommendations, including the adoption of concert cutoff time similar to Fiddler's Green Amphitheater. The smaller Greenwood Village venue requires its weekend concert goers to end at 11.15 p.m. as opposed to Red Rock's 12.30 a.m. It also recommends stricter sound level restrictions, establishing a Red Rocks concert noise compliant line, adopting dark sky recommendations for outdoor lighting, and changes in traffic to reduce congestion. Bowman said Red Rocks keep close tabs on performers' decibel level. We are very diligent about monitoring the sound levels with the equipment we have and enforcing the limits, he said. He said outdoor lighting, as the amphitheater is largely unchanged, though some downcast lighting was added along the roads a couple of years ago to help concert goers get safely to and from their cars. The increase in shows, he said, is driven by concert lovers. If there wasn't demand, they wouldn't have the shows, said Bowman, who on February 12th attended a Country Music Association event at Red Rocks was named Venue of the Year. Red Rocks regularly enjoys that sort of recognition, and that's going to drive impact and drive some demand. While the venue season has extended to include late fall and early spring, Bowman said it will never be a year-round venue. More about Red Rocks. Red Rocks Amphitheater broke concerts and attendance records in 2023, during which it hosted 133 shows in a row and sold over 1.65 million tickets.
It is the best attended outdoor venue in the United States and one of the top five busiest venues in the world. A 2022 study shows the venue generated $700 million in economic activity over the course of a concert season. Red Rocks was recently named the 2023 EDM Venue of the Year and the Country Music Association's Venue of the Year. Denver Police Ask Families Who Used Apollo Funeral Home for Help by Joe Davis. Denver police are asking families whose loved ones were cremated at an Apollo funeral and cremation services for help. The Jefferson County funeral home closed in 2022, but has come to the attention of investigators who have issued an arrest warrant for its owner, 33-year-old Miles Hartford. Rick Kyle, Division Chief of Investigations, said dozens of cremation remains or cremains in urns and other receptacles along with a body were allegedly found where Hartford resided in Denver. The remains were discovered shortly after Hartford was evicted from the residence on the 2500 block of South Quitman Street on February 6th. A cleaning crew discovered what police would later identify as cremains with the help of the city's medical examiner. Investigators then discovered a hearse parked on the property and the dead body of a 63-year-old woman inside. Police believe that the body was, quote, stored and concealed in the hearse for a lengthy period of time and that the woman's family were given an unknown person's cremains. Police Major Crimes Division Commander Matt Clark said Hartford apparently fell on hard times and further alleged that Hartford gave multiple families the wrong cremains and said that some families may not have received remains at all. The Denver Office of the Medical Examiners believe that about 30 descendants' remains were recovered at Hartford's home. The remains were in urns and receptacles in Hartford's home and in the hearse, Clark said. Denver police have issued a warrant for Hartford on suspicion of abuse of a corpse, forgery, and theft. The police ask that any clients of Apollo Funeral and Cremation Services, which had a Littleton zip code, who did not receive the cremations of a loved one, or those who experienced any irregularity with or had concerns about the funeral home to call 720-913-6610. What's happening in Jeffco? Lakewood leader appointed in the National League of Cities, an environmental film fest comes to Golden and more by Joe Davis. This week in Jefferson County, a Lakewood City Councilor is appointed to a committee within the National League of Cities. Then, Governor Jared Polis shares a plan to expand medical education programs, capacities, and facilities. Additionally, the Colorado Environmental Film Festival is coming to Golden and more. Lakewood Council member appointed to National League of Cities. The National League of Cities recently appointed Lakewood City Council member Jacob LeBure to its Finance Administration and Intergovernmental Relations Committee. LeBure will serve for one year on the committee. Quote, the federal budget and finance issues are critical to the health and well-being of all our residents and to our community, said Councilman LeBure. Serving on the Fair Federal Action Committee is an honor, and I am excited to get to work. According to their website, the National League of Cities is made up of leaders from cities, towns, and villages from across the U.S., they focus on improving the quality of life in member cities and beyond. 
NLC's Federal Advocacy Committee plays an important role in helping policymakers in Washington understand the issues and challenges facing American cities, towns, and villages at the local level, said NLC President Mayor David Sander of Rancho Cordova, California. I'm thrilled to have Councilman LeBure serve on NLC's Finance, Administration, and Intergovernmental Affairs Committee this year, and look forward to working with him to strengthen the federal-local partnership and grow our common knowledge of the issues and opportunities facing our communities. For more information, visit nlc.org. Death Benefits for Surviving Spouse Bill Passes Colorado House of Representatives. The Colorado House of Representatives recently passed HB 24-1139, Death Benefit for State Employee Surviving Spouse. The bill guarantees lifetime death benefits to the surviving spouses of people killed while on a high-risk job. The law ensures benefits even if the surviving spouse remarries. Quote, when the surviving spouse of firefighters, control state patrol officers, and other first responders remarry, they lose the death benefits they are entitled to, said Representative Sheila Leader from Lakewood. Death benefits for spouses are crucial in supporting widows and widowers in times during these times of need. Our legislation ensures that surviving spouses will continue to see death benefits even if they remarry to help them heal from the trauma of losing their spouse while allowing them to move forward with their life. The bill defines a job with high-risk classification as state troopers, Colorado Bureau of Investigation officers, correction officers, community parole officers, state firefighters, port of entry officers, parks and wildlife officers, and CDOT safety and maintenance workers, according to the announcement. The bill was co-sponsored by Representative Ryan Armagost. For more information, visit the Colorado General Assembly website. Governor Jared Polis announces new medical programs and healthcare worker programs. Governor Jared Polis recently joined the leadership of Metropolitan State University and the Colorado State University system to announce a plan to move to fund a medical school. The move was to address Colorado's healthcare worker shortage, according to the announcement. With this plan, Colorado will train more world-class doctors, nurses, veterinarians, and other healthcare professionals to provide Coloradans with the care they need. From Denver to Fort Collins, Greeley, and Trinidad, these new opportunities will attract students from Colorado and across the country to our communities. This will positively impact the local economy and ensure Colorado has a strong healthcare workforce needed to provide care to Coloradans today and in the future, said Governor Polis. By fostering opportunities for discovery and innovation in higher education, we pave the way for groundbreaking advancements that have the power to transform healthcare and improve countless lives, said Dr. Angie Pachone, Executive Director of the Colorado Department of Higher Education. The plan and the new medical school will be funded by a bipartisan bill to support medical programs at the College of Osteopathic Medicine at UNC, the Health Institute Tower at MSU Denver, the Veterinarian Health Education Complex at CSU, and the Valley Campus Building Addition at Trinidad State. This funding includes increasing capacity in these schools and creating programs, according to the announcement, the College of Osteopathic Medicine at UNC, the Health Institute Tower at MSU, Denver, the Veterinary Health Education Complex at CSU, and the Valley Campus Building Association Addition 
at Trinidad State. For more information, visit colorado.gov. The Colorado Environmental Film Festival opens Thursday, February 22nd. Get your seats reserved for the Colorado Environmental Film Festival in Golden, February 22nd through February 25th at various locations around Golden. The festival spotlights films with environmental themes from all types of creators. About 66 films are on the schedule for this year. Filmmakers come from all over the world and include student films. According to Nicole Bickford, festival director, CEFF is in its 19th year. The festival has screened 852 films since its inception and is still Colorado's only niche environmental film festival, Bickford said. She revealed that the festival this year has 12 Colorado filmmakers. The films in this year's lineup covering the following topics. Activism and environmental justice. Adventure. Consumption and waste. Energy and climate chaos and fossil fuels. Health and food. Land use and conservation. Water, rivers, and oceans. Wildlife. The Colorado Environmental Film Festival is in person February 22nd through the 25th. There is also an online component that can be screened from the comforts of home. The online film Encore runs February 26th through March 3rd. Get tickets, see the full schedule, and more at CEFF.net. Local Voices. Biff celebrates a milestone two decades. Coming attractions by Clark Reader. Two decades is a long time for any event to last, so it's easy to understand why sisters Kathy and Robin Beek, the founders and directors of the Boulder International Film Festival, wanted to make the 20th anniversary of the community-driven festival a big celebration for everybody. We have a lot to celebrate and want to share that with the community that has embraced us so much, Kathy said. Film festivals are about building community and growing relationships, and we've gotten to the point where this is something your community, our community looks forward to all year. The 20th Boulder International Film Festival runs from Thursday, February 29th through Sunday, March 3rd in downtown Boulder. This year's lineup includes 74 films from 25 countries, community events, and much more. About 50 filmmakers will be attending this year, including acclaimed actress Laura Linney, but the festival has long prided itself on its locally driven programming. There are 18 films taking part in the festival made by Colorado filmmakers, and many of the special events feature local talents. One of our most popular events is the Biff Singer Songwriter Showcase, which provides free, local, free live music performances by local musicians, Kathy said. We found so many filmmakers coming to town there often looking for music to add to their films. It's just one of the beautiful layers we've added to the event. Some of the film highlights from this year include opener Ezra, which stars Robert De Niro, Bobby Cannavale, and Rose Byrne. Wildcat, directed by Ethan Hawke, features Maya Hawke and Linny, who will receive the festival's Vanguard Award, and Cirque du Soleil, Without a Net, a documentary about the famous traveling circus. Biff really goes all out on the special events this year and remains this, the, the case this year. There's the popular Chef event, which will be held on Thursday, 20, February 29th, and features eight Colorado chefs creating dishes inspired by their local favorite classic films. And the Adventure Film Pavilion is back, a feature that Kathy loves.
This is our fourth year hosting the Pavilion. Have We have a fantastic program, she said. You just get sucked into these great movies that we'll be showing there. There's really something for everybody at the Pavilion. Organizers want to ensure the community that has kept the festival thriving for 20 years gets to take part in the festivities. So there will be a free community day on Saturday, March 2nd at E-Town Hall. This event will feature free screenings of five favorite films from the festival's first 20 years. And Biff will also be handling, handing out free birthday cakes on the Pearl Street Mall. The festival is a great opportunity to go and escape and meet some wonderful people, Kathy said. We have such great films this year, and seeing a great movie is something that can stick with you for your whole life. Full details and ticket options can be found at biff1.com. B-I-F-F, the number one, dot com. A rich historical cake comes to North Glen. Some topics are easier to discuss when food is involved. That's what Dasha Kelly Hamilton, a writer and performer who was named Wisconsin Poet Laureate and Milwaukee's Artist of the Year in 2021, brings to her show, Making Cake. She'll be performing the work at the Parsons Theater, 1 East Memorial Parkway entrance in North Glen at 7.30 p.m. on Saturday, February 24th. According to provided information in the show, she slices into American history, exploring race, culture, and class in a refreshing and fun way. Hamilton even leaves room for dessert with dialogue, with a cake reception immediately following the performance. For more information and tickets, visit ci.ovationtix.com. Flow Down the River with John Fielder. Photographer John Fielder is one of the most well-known creatives in Colorado history, and his landscape photos capture something quintessential about the state's natural landscape. As the keeper of Fielder's Colorado collection, History Colorado has unveiled a year-long exhibit called Flow on the River with John Fielder on display at the History Colorado Center, 1200 Broadway in Denver. Set up in the John Fielder mezzanine gallery, that exhibit uses iconic large-format prints and Fielder quotes to focus on the uses and importance of the Colorado River. Get the details at historycolorado.org. And Clark's Concert of the Week, The Paper Kites at the Ogden Theater. Australia's The Paper Kites specialize in a kind of folk rock that effortlessly moves from wistful and melancholy to stirring and invigorating. They don't have a bad album in their discography in last year's At the Roadhouse. Continues that streak, providing listeners with the perfect music to play at the end of the day. In support of the album, the Paper Kites will be performing at the Ogden Theater, 935 East Colfax Avenue in Denver at 8 p.m. on Wednesday, February 28th. They'll be joined by alt-country singer-songwriter Bella White for an evening of gorgeous music. Get tickets at Ticketmaster.com. Clark Reader's column on culture appears on a weekly basis. He can be reached at clarkwithane.reader at hotmail.com. Black-owned businesses are making history in Colorado and across America. Guest column, Ekta Marcoulier. Colorado small business owners are some of the strongest, most creative and resilient people you will ever meet. In recent years, 
Our small business community has weathered a global pandemic, persistent supply chain issues, sometimes volatile prices, and a tight labor market. Black-owned businesses in our state have faced disproportionate impacts from these pandemic challenges. Despite those headwinds, black entrepreneurs across Colorado are fueling one of the largest and most diverse waves of new business creation America has ever seen, what President Biden calls America's small business boom. As we mark America's 48th National Celebration of Black History Month, the SBA is highlighting black entrepreneur achievements here in Colorado and throughout the nation. The past three years have been the three strongest years of new business information formation in American history. The 16 million new business applications filed during this period show Americans starting businesses at nearly twice the rate, 86% faster compared to the pre-2021 average. During that time, U.S. small businesses have created more than 7.2 million net new jobs. And black-owned businesses are responsible for some of the most significant gains. This historic entrepreneurial boom didn't come out of nowhere. President Biden's Investing in America agenda reopened our nation's economy, brought back Made in America manufacturing, and restored American, America's global competitiveness. We're rebuilding America's roads, bridges, ports, and water systems while we build the clean energy economy of tomorrow. We're also expanding high-speed internet access nationwide, including to many of Colorado's rural areas. These investments are powering the Biden small business boom. And unlike many economic recoveries of the past, this one includes entrepreneurs of color. One of the reasons for that is the SBA's Community Navigator Pilot Program. This innovative hub and spoke partnership connected hundreds of community organizations around the country, like the U.S. Black Chambers of Commerce, and the National Urban League with Entrepreneurs, helping them make the most of SBA resources so their small businesses can grow and thrive. Under SBA Administrator Isabel Casillas-Guzman's leadership, the agency has also delivered record-breaking government contracting for small businesses, including the most federal contracting dollars going to minority-owned businesses in history. And we're addressing long-standing gaps in access to capital for black entrepreneurs, more than doubling our small business loans to black-owned businesses since 2020. These investments are making a big impact. Black-owned businesses' ownership is growing at the fastest pace in 30 years. The share of black households owning a business doubled between 2019 and 2022. In 2023 alone, census data showed Americans filed 5.5 million new business applications across the country, including 143,000 here in Colorado. That success is creating a rising tide. Black wealth is up a record 60% from before the pandemic, and black unemployment has reached historic lows since 2021. These positive impacts are not isolated. In fact, we're seeing positive gains for small business across demographics, regions, economic sectors, and beyond. While Colorado's Black-owned businesses continue to power the small business boom, our work is far from done. Despite record federal dollars reaching Black-owned businesses through government contracting, long-standing disparities persist. Recently, the president announced his new goal to increase the share of federal co contracts with small disadvantaged businesses to 15% by fiscal year 2025. This represents a massive increase over historical averages and a 50% increase from when he first took office and a huge step towards equity. 
The SBA also understands that even in good times, minority entrepreneurs and other historically underserved communities, including women, veterans, and rural, still face obstacles accessing capital. That's why the SBA is committed to ensuring that anyone with a good idea can pursue that opportunity. We're helping more Americans than ever access the funds they need to realize their dreams of small business ownership. And that means more jobs, more goods and services, and more resilient communities, no matter the zip code. For more information on SBA's programs and services, please visit sba.gov. And remember to follow us on Twitter at SBA Rocky MTN and at SBA underscore Colorado. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News. My name is Gregory Haddock. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. Today I'll be reading articles from the Denver Voice, Denverite, and Westward. From the Denver Voice, I'll be reading Justice Necessary. Addressing Period Poverty in Colorado by Grace Thorburn. From Denverite, I'll be reading, A giant biennial printmaking celebration is in Denver. Here's how to pick up some fresh art or a new skill by Isaac Vargas. And United Airlines' Central Park Pilot Training Center, the largest in the world, just got bigger. Here's a look inside by Rebecca Tauber. From Westward, I'll be reading, Denver Researcher Identifies What People Actually Want from Police by Katie Cheshire and New Petition Reignites Effort to Remove Tigers from Denver's Downtown Aquarium by Hannah Metzger. I'll finish up the hour with other articles from Westward. This first article is from the Denver Voice. Justice Necessary Addressing Period Poverty in Colorado by Grace Thorburn. Diane Cushman Neal was admitted into a Denver hospital with cystic fibrosis after, and after several weeks came out of it with the news the condition had damaged her lungs. She would need a double lung transplant to survive. This was in March of 2020, just a few days before COVID-19 began sweeping the country. The world stopped, she recalled in an interview with Denver Voice. So I came home and said, how are we going to do this during a respiratory pandemic? Cushman Neal said that she thought about her situation and realized that instead of worrying, she should put her talents into advocating for positive change and helping others rather than focusing on her problems. With that, she decided to take action. This is not an unusual approach for Cushman Neal, who said her family describes her as having relentless determination and a knack for generating ideas which has motivated her to take on various philanthropic projects throughout her life. Cushman Neal's initial passion for change-making in the community was sparked as a youth when she volunteered at food pantries, and since then, her desire to help others has continued to blossom. As Denver and other cities locked down during the peak of the pandemic, news stories reported that newly out-of-work families were rushing to food pantries. It occurred to Cushman Neal that if kids weren't in school due to the pandemic, it meant they weren't getting free lunches or breakfasts and families were going hungry. When Cushman Neal offered to help her local pantry, she learned about an even bigger issue. Not only was lack of food a problem, but as the pantry workers explained, feminine hygiene products were scarce. According to the pantry staff, 
When a woman came in looking for period products, there was only a small supply of tampons or pads. Cushman Neal said this made her wonder if feminine hygiene was overlooked, how were menstruating girls and women going to cope? Cushman Neal recognized that when a mother faces challenges accessing period products, that need often extends to difficulties in obtaining diapers for their children. That situation can lead parents to prioritize their children's needs over their own. I made this pact in my head that I was going to get the pantry a year's worth of products anonymously and help them get through the pandemic, Cushman Neal said. In doing so, I had this epiphany that if someone doesn't have period products, that also means they don't have diapers and they'll sacrifice period products for diapers. This flash of lightning inspiration led to a significant change for Cushman Neal. She contacted the Jewish Family Services Food Program and suggested that they host a drive for food and hygiene products. She explained to them that she would help, but she would have to work in isolation as she couldn't risk exposure to others due to her cystic fibrosis and delicate lungs. JFS Food Program's annual fall food drive in 2020 was held virtually due to COVID-19. Cushman Neal had been working with an organic, eco-friendly period company. She'd negotiated favorable pricing for the period products, and her goal was to secure a similar pricing arrangement with a diaper company to maximize the funds raised. The drive ran parallel with the JFS annual food drive for 30 days, raising the equivalent of 6,000 months of period products and 80,000 diapers. Pleased with the result, Cushman Neal thanked the pantry staff and suggested they do it again next year. In response, they said, Oh no, your work is not finished at all. You need to keep going. So she did, and along the way, Justice Necessary was born. Today, Cushman Neal is building on the success in the wake of external circumstances that continue to force too many into choosing to go without period products and diapers so that they can feed their families. A report published in 2022 by Justice Necessary found that 47% of Colorado women experience period poverty. Period poverty refers to the struggle women face when trying to afford menstrual products. To address this struggle, Justice Necessary is delivering personal hygiene products to schools, food pantries, and outreach organizations to meet immediate hygiene needs in Colorado communities. A few of their partners include CU Denver, the Salvation Army, Jeffco Public Schools, and the Period Minstrel Movement. People aren't paying attention to this issue of period poverty, said Kate Swindell, a team member for the organization Period a nonprofit working to eradicate period poverty globally. It's a think globally, act locally type of movement right now. According to Swindell, period was established through the passion of 16-year-old Nadia Okamata from Portland, Oregon, who gave a name and face to the problem of period poverty. Period, which is made up of 10 women, strives to eradicate period poverty and stigma through advocacy such as their worldwide period action day. Swindell said, giving people language and helping people feel comfortable with their bodies and their biological processes is the most rewarding part of her work with period. Getting comfortable with the word period and talking about menstruation has been the coolest thing to see. People say it, 
own it and use it. Assistance programs in Colorado, such as Women, Infants, and Children, and the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, don't cover the costs of diapers, baby wipes, or feminine hygiene products. What's more, the FDA's decision in February of 2023 to cut extra funding to government programs like SNAP and months of unusually high inflation have battered many struggling families and reduced their buying power by magnitudes. Justice Necessary's commitment to a cleaner environment has allowed the organization to address two pressing societal issues simultaneously, protecting the planet and providing feminine hygiene products that are free of harmful chemicals. Cushman Neal pointed out that a common misconception is people automatically assume eco-friendly products that are good for our bodies and the environment are expensive and not within reach. Period products that contain formaldehyde and known carcinogens easily transmit these chemicals into the bodies of menstruators. Medically, we've been able to create vaginal creams that allow medication to be delivered through that method as they go very easily into the bloodstream, said Cushman Neal. When you think about how easy it is on a medical level and then formaldehyde, a harmful, potentially cancer-causing chemical which is found in so many menstrual products, goes into or on a menstruator's body, you think about what does that do long-term, said Cushman Neal. Cushman Neal said that by providing the community with hygiene products that are free of harmful chemicals and environmentally responsible, they're avoiding boomeranging these women back into a system where they need will need medical help in the long term due to these harmful chemicals entering their bodies. For someone with a motto of dream it, plan it, do it, connecting with nearly 1,000 pantries and organizations in Colorado that provide personal hygiene products to menstruators in the Colorado community is just the starting point of Cushman Neal's work. Justice Necessary will soon launch Find Your Pantry, a program to help community members find their nearest pantry for food, period products, hygiene products, and more. By doing this, it allows us to tell people in Colorado where to go so that you don't have to have somebody traveling across town with their children to find out they can't get diapers, they can't get period products, said Cushman Neal. There's so many people that are so generous that can work on a community level to support each other. At the heart of Cushman Neal's work at Justice Necessary is helping the next person in need, month after month, by increasing outreach to connect with further organizations and food pantries to ideally fulfill the needs of all 64 counties in Colorado. According to Cushman Neal, when someone calls to express how access to personal hygiene products has enabled them to resume their daily routines, like going to work, spending time with their families, or going to school, she knows justice necessary is making a difference. She also knows her work has just begun. What's hard for me, honestly, is I then worry that we've only done this amount, but I want to do more. The next two articles are from Denverite. A giant biennial printmaking celebration is in Denver. Here's how to pick up some fresh art or a new skill by Isaac Vargas. Fresh ink will be rolled, spread, and left to dry on paper and fabric across the state as the biennial Mo Print short for month of printmaking, returns for the sixth time. It really is a way to educate the city about printmaking and honor the artists that do it, 
said Deb Rosenbaum, printmaker and faculty at the Art Students League of Denver. The schedule of events is mind-blowing. Etching, engraving, lithography, screen printing, and other printmaking techniques will be showcased not just across the Denver metro area, but all throughout Colorado in celebration of the state's printmaking community. With more than 25 exhibitions, 30 workshops and demonstrations, and 15 studio tours in Denver, MoPrint is a great way to purchase affordable prints, take a lesson or two in the art form, and watch local artists complete printmaking processes in action. MoPrint is a 100% volunteer-organized event that brings programming with a purpose to inspire and provide access to the fine art of making original handcrafted prints. The Art Students League of Denver is one of the organizations hosting a set of programming in the weeks ahead, including an exhibition called Supporting Indigenous Sisters, a print portfolio to create discussions on the levels of missing and murdered indigenous women. They will also showcase Printmaking 101, an educational exhibit on the fundamentals of print printmaking. For those curious about learning the art form themselves, there will be free artist demonstrations on Saturday, April 6th, showcasing printmaking techniques such as woodcut, etching, and solar plate in their studios. They will be watching someone pulling the print, making the print, and talking about the process, Rosenbaum said. It's a good opportunity if you just want to learn more about prints to just go and watch somebody make one. As you plan your visits, here are four main events and programming to look out for. On view through March 24th, the Arvada Center for the Arts and Humanities will host the 528.0 Regional Juried Printmaking Exhibition, featuring a massive showcase of 83 selected and juried works from artists living in a 528-mile radius of Denver. As part of First Friday celebrations, MoPrint will be hosting a fundraiser known as Black Ink on Friday, March 1st from 6 p.m. to midnight that will showcase affordable and collectible $10 black work linocuts created by more than 60 of Denver's artists. Peruse through and meet a lineup of 78 artists showcasing works in etching, lithography, screen print, woodcut, and more at the Denver Botanic Gardens on Saturday, March 9th from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. The free market-style event will offer large and small prints created by both students and established artists. Then, on both Saturday and Sunday, March 23rd and 24th, from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m., Denverites can spend one or both days visiting various print shops and artist studios with a chance to meet artists and see them create in action. United Airlines' Central Park Pilot Training Center, the largest in the world, just got bigger. Here's a look inside by Rebecca Tauber. Tucked away inside a massive Central Park warehouse is the latest addition to United's massive flight training center, the largest in the world. The facility already hosts around 80,000 trainings for its staff per year, and on Thursday, the airline opened up a new wing of the center. The facility butts up against some Denver aviation history, originally built to be near Denver's original Stapleton Airport. The site includes eight buildings with 46 flight simulators. 
The expanded facility comes as the airline sets its sight on expansion. United hired 2,300 pilots nationwide in 2023 and 300 pilots so far this year. United CEO Scott Kirby attributed the growth to the airline's approach during the pandemic. While some industry experts predicted that the travel industry would never recover, Kirby said United set its sights on expansion in preparation for travel opening back up. While the airline was hit hard during the pandemic shutdown, that bet ultimately paid off, with the travel industry seeing massive demand in the past two years. United greenlit the plans for the $145 million building in the summer of 2020. It was a once-in-history opportunity for us to leapfrog everyone else and move to a leadership position, Kirby said at a ribbon-cutting Thursday. With the new center will come even more United jobs. Already the state's largest private employer, the airline expects the expanded center to create more than 370 new jobs in Denver. United also estimates it will spend more than $65 million on hotel rooms in the city for pilots visiting the facility for training. Overall, United plans to hire more than 1,000 people in Denver this year. We are very proud of the fact that there are more than 10,000 United employees right now who call Denver home, said Mayor Mike Johnston on Thursday. And training is not United's only expansion in Denver. The airline announced last year that it was adding 35 flights, 6 routes, 12 gates, and more than 1,000 new jobs to Denver International Airport, making DIA one of United's largest in the U.S. In August, the airline laid out plans to buy 113 acres of land in the city for training. All that expansion comes alongside the Denver Airport's plans to add 4 new concourses and 100 more gates by 2045. The following articles are from Westward. Denver Researcher Identifies What People Actually Want from Police by Katie Cheshire. A who's who of Denver policing gathered at the University of Denver on February 21st to hear Ajani Clemens, an assistant professor at DU's Scrivener Institute of Public Policy, discuss what people really want from law enforcement. Denver Police Chief Ron Thomas who describes Clemens as a longtime friend, was there. So were Armando Saldate, head of Denver's Department of Public Safety, Liz Castle, Denver's Independent Monitor, members of the city's Citizen Oversight Board, and community civil civil rights leader Lisa Calderon, a two-time candidate for mayor. Clemens helped establish the Denver Office of the Independent Monitor in 2004 before heading to Duke University to get her PhD. At this event at the Joseph Corbell School of International Studies, which houses the Scrivener Institute, she shared results of research completed from 2017 to 2020. Her study focused on what residents of neighborhoods that had been disenfranchised from police to the point of legal cynicism a term used by researchers to describe when people believe law enforcement is illegitimate, unresponsive, and ill-equipped to ensure public safety, wanted out of of their police departments. On one hand, there's research that says black Americans are more likely to avoid police or to want to keep their distance. But on the other hand, 
There's this public polling showing the majority of African Americans want police protection, Clemens explained. I'm entering the debates about whether African Americans living in areas challenged by high crime levels want to distance from police or whether they want to be closer to them. Clemens used Durham, North Carolina as her case study, along with British Bengali Muslims living in London. She found many surprising similarities between the two groups through 52 interviews with 18 to 29-year-old men living in high-crime, heavily policed neighborhoods from 2017 to 2020. Two-thirds of those men had been on the receiving end of a crime, with a little over half the victim of a violent crime. Over half half had also witnessed a violent crime, and 38% of the American participants had been shot at least once. Clemens found that 76% of them held views consistent with legal cynicism. Americans and Brits criticized police as ineffective against criminals, whilst, whilst also violating people's constitutional and human rights, and treating them too often with bias, disrespect, and excessive force, she said. The men shared scores of stories with me that they characterized as infuriating and unbelievable stories in which they were either physically hurt and or humiliated by police. The interviewees were worried about the world becoming unsafe and felt that they couldn't protect their loved ones. They were particularly concerned about the next generation. This was a cry for children, Clemens said. I mean, these were 18 to 29-year-old men. You would think they were in their 70s, the way they were talking about this next generation and their concerns. Yet across the board, and despite their legal cynicism, they saw police as integral to helping reverse crime trends and creating a safer world for the next generation. They identified five qualities that an ideal police force should embody. The first was being crime stoppers. Participants said they think some people should go to jail, and if police could prevent crimes and catch criminals without harassing community members, that would be an invaluable service. Second, research participants said police should be problem solvers who could help resolve short-term disputes and collaborate on solutions to complex problems in the area they serve. Though more more Londoners wanted police to be ambassadors, with 42% identifying that role for officers compared to 24% of Americans, they all wanted officers to serve as educators about safety. On the other hand, around two-thirds of Americans compared to 16% of Brits said one of their ideal roles for police was as community stewards. I would tell the person in power, whoever it is, to deploy the police officers to go to the community, spend more time in the community, eat their food and share the sun with those people and build a relationship, Clemens said, sharing a quote from one of her participants. They also suggested that officers collaborate on service projects with the community, hold events such as parades in areas that had experienced violent crime, and even financially restore people who had been subject to fines and fees from law enforcement. Castle asked Clemens if research participants felt the police force should reflect the community in terms of race, and if they preferred that officers come from within the community they oversee. They still wanted the proper vetting regardless of the person, Clemens answered. They wanted accountability regardless of the person, 
but they did want police forces to be diverse. They also wanted them to be culturally competent and they wanted more hiring locally. Even if officers weren't recruited, recruited locally, participants wanted them to take action to show they respected and cared for the community by doing things like fixing flat tires and help grandmas to build trust 